Okay, we'd like to welcome you to our current event in Bible study for 5-11-08. And the title of this teaching is going to be exposing the manifest sons of God, which also ties in with the latter rain movement, Joel's army, reconstructionism, these types of things. We're going to probably be doing an ongoing series on, on this subject, on um, uh, dominionism, as it's tied in with that. We're going to start with this particular subject, and uh, I'm be quoting from an article initially from uh, ReachOutTrust.org, titled The Manifest Sons of God. The Manifest Sons of God is a belief that's not held by one particular group, but many individuals are influenced by this teaching. It has many names, such as the Latter Rain Movement, Identity, Joel's Army, Restoration, and Reconstruction. The purpose of this article is not to highlight the differences between the groups, but to look at their core beliefs and compare them with the revelation of Scripture. And that's why I like this particular article, because let's look at the nuts and bolts, let's look at the black and white issues here, not, at, not the gray. Let's look at what's very, very obvious, and then let's compare it to what the Bible says. Because if this is true, and if this is of God, then it should line up with the Bible, and... and just keep that last statement that I just said in mind during this whole teaching, because, again, it, it, anything that's true and valid and good should line up with the King James Bible. It shouldn't contradict it, because God is not the author of confusion. And the problem you run into with all of these supposed movements, and really it's nothing more, than, it's no different than any other pseudo-Christian cult, is that they always have extra-biblical interpretations of things that always invariably end up contradicting the Word of God. So you're left with the decision, what do I believe? What path do I follow? Do I follow the Word of God, or do I follow what the supposed prophet or the supposed apostle is saying? And if they were true, and if they were of God, why are they contradicting the Word of God? That's the, that's the whole premise of... of almost every teaching that we that we do relating to these types of, of subjects. So the Manifest Sons of God doctrine has been around in some Pentecostal circles for many years. But it was the Latter Rain movement of 1948 that gave them a wider audience. This movement was thought of as the last great spiritual outpouring that would see the return of Christ. It would result in the church being perfected and submitting to the restored ministry of the apostles and prophets. These ministries would be in charge of restoring truths that were lost to the church. Now, again, these truths, as we're going to see, are totally extra and extra biblical and contradictory to the Word of God very much of the time. Okay, so the scripture, then it goes on to say the scriptures refer to the reigns, these reigns that there are in reference to, in Israel as the former reign essentially for planning, and the latter rain needed to be for the harvest. The manifest sons see the former rain as Pentecost, you know, after, you know, Jesus was uh, resurrected, and rose from the dead. They see that as Pentecost. And the latter rain they see as a greater outpouring of the, quote, spirit in the last days. There's evidence that much teaching on spiritual warfare today is largely an extension of this doctrine. Scriptural interpretations of this. All scriptures that refer to a resurrection or redemption of the body are to be fulfilled by a select group of overcomers called, quote, the sons of God. While here on this earth, they believe that they will be sinless and immortal 
in their physical bodies when they become the manifest sons of God. So this is going to be a special sect of Christians that are, that are going to walk the earth, that are going to be sinless and immortal. You shall be as gods. Doesn't that sound like what you know Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden, the original sin? Yeah, that's what they believe. So all of us, already we see the pride issues that would be developing here. Number two, all scriptures that refer to being caught up to the throne of God are thought to have their fulfillment with this manifestation of the sons of God. The many-membered, or the many-membered man-child company that will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, Jesus Christ is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Okay, but they're, what they're doing, and a common theme of this manifested sons of God, is they're usurping Jesus Christ. They're usurping his role as ruling with a rod of iron. And they're usurping his work that he is going to come back and do. You know, when he comes back on a white horse and, you know, these types of things. They're wanting to take that role upon themselves. Again, we see this, the, the flagrant pride uh, issues that go along with this thing. They want to be as God. And they want to they have the audacity to believe that they're going to have his power and that they are little messiahs or gods themselves. Let's, let's look at some proof of this. Albert James Dagger, in an article in the Spotlight Media, Volume 8, Number 1, gives the summary, summary account of the, manifest, of the manifest sons of God. This is a quote from his article. He says, Man lost dominion over the earth when Adam and Eve succumbed to Satan's temptations. God lost control of the earth to Satan at that time. Oh, is that so? I thought he was on the throne. Huh. He lost control of, of earth to Satan at that time. It's almost as though God was helpless at that point, is the impression they're trying to give. And, has, and then has since been looking for a covenant of covenant people who will be his extension or expression in the earth and take dominion back from Satan. As though God couldn't just do that with a thought. As the Lord Jesus Christ is, they, they, they view him evidently as inept because he lost control to Satan. Of course that was Adam and Eve's free will decision. But they have the audacity to believe that God has to have some special people, these manifest sons of God, in order to finally get the job done. Because he's not capable of doing it. This is the impression you get reading this literature, uh, on these quotes directly from these teachers, these apostate teachers teaching this theory. So let's go back to this quote here. Uh, so this, this taking back the earth and dominion will be accomplished through certain overcomers who will take control of the kingdoms of the world. He goes on to say, these kingdoms are defined as all social institutions, such as the kingdom of education, the kingdom of science, the kingdom of the arts, one of my favorites, uh, and so on. Most especially there is the kingdom or of politics or government. So again, this is how they would they would justify probably being involved in all facets of society to try to, you know, change it. Whereas Jesus Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world, and if it were, my servants would fight. See, they, they don't believe that. They believe that we're actually supposed to take physical dominion 
back over of the earth, that the earth's going to get better and better and better, that these manifest sons of God are essentially going to open the door to usher in Jesus Christ coming back, and without them, Jesus Christ can't come back. But it's all hinges upon these manifest sons of God, not upon Jesus Christ. And again, you see the, the unbelievable flagrant pride issue in this whole thing. Going back to this quote, he says, Those in control at this time are referred to as the many-membered man-child, whom kingdom theology adherents believe will be the fulfillment of Revelation 12, 1-5. Those who hold to kingdom theology assume that the church, under well, but, but only a small group of them will be called overcomers, but they assume that the church, under the submission to the latter-day apostles and prophets, is that man-child, and that it has the responsibility to put down all rebellion and to establish righteousness. The many-membered man-child must take control of the earth before Jesus can return. And again, I, what I just said was confirmed there with the end of this quote. So, you know, evidently they, they view Jesus' hands as totally tied up until the time when this many-membered man-child finally gets on the scene and does his thing and uh, opens this door. And that they have the responsibility to put down our rebellion. Now, a common theme with, and this ties into dominionism, we're probably going to do more of a, a detailed study on dominionism uh, possibly next week. But uh, a common theme is, is actually taking the world by force. I mean, raising up an army, in this case Joel's army, in order to actually take dominion over and take back, and if, if, if necessary, by force. Now, I believe when the Antichrist makes his, his uh, appearance, they're going to view the Antichrist as Jesus Christ. Most of these people are going to be absolutely duped and believe that the Antichrist is Jesus Christ. And they're going to believe that their theology works. They're going to be vindicated. And what's going to end up happening is, it's going to bolster their position even more, and they're going to play right into the Antichrist's hands. That's most likely how this is going to play out. Um, and when the Antichrist tells them to take things back by force for those non-believers, they're not going to have a problem lopping people's heads off or doing whatever they've got to do, because they're going to believe they're doing it for God, and they're going to believe they have this spe special commission to do it, even though it's totally unbiblical, and the Bible did not say it was going to, you know, play out this way, or we should go around killing people, or things of this nature, they're not going to have a problem with it. Because they're believing men. They're not believing the Bible. And the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and that maketh flesh his arm, and his heart departeth from the Lord. Jeremiah 17.5 So, you know, that's what we're going to be looking at a lot of these quotes from these uh, supposed prophets and apostles here. So, Moving forward, it says they will become Christ, these manifest sons of God, both corporately and individually. They consider the corporate body of Christ to be Christ. In other words, the body of Christ is actually Jesus Christ walking around here on earth. The body of Christ is thought to be the literal extension of the incarnation of Christ. This causes both scriptures 
that refer to his ruling the nations and judging the world to find fulfillment through them. So in other words, they are actually the literal body and blood and representation of Jesus Christ on this earth. So they believe then all the scriptures where it talks about Jesus Christ, even though ruling with a rod of iron is in the millennium, but coming back and annihilating those at Armageddon and these types of things, they believe that personally applies to them. This is how they could justify doing all this stuff. A distinction is made between Christ's coming to rule and judge the world through the sons of God and his latter individual personal return. He is unable to return until the stage is set by the establishment of his rule and reign through the sons of God who have first subdued the nations. Taking dominion, this is where we get dominionism from, and executing judgment on the ungodly, thus establishing the new age. Now it's going to be a new age and a new world order. Jesus is considered the, quote, pattern son. And S-O-N, not S-U-N. Pattern son. He was the first one to make it as divine, as a divine, immortal, sinless, manifest son of God. He was just the first one, that's all. He was just our pattern. And this accomplishment will be duplicated by each individual who will follow Jesus. So we're all going to be little sons of God. We're all going to be... I don't have a problem calling a Christian who's, who's right with a God a, the sons of God because the New Testament does refer to Christians ultimately that way. But I have a real problem someone calling me Jesus Christ. Or thinking that I'm on, on the same level as him. Or that, you know, I can't absolve people's sins. I don't care if I'm saved or, or not. I can't absolve people's sins. I didn't die and pay their sin debt. I'm not seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ever making intercession for the saints. I didn't create the world and the universe and the stars. Not me. I'm glad. I would have messed everything up. But they evidently feel that they're worthy of this. You know, it's, and all, it goes back to the first sin of the Bible, which essentially when Satan fell, why did he fall? Well, it said he fell for two reasons. Because of his merchandise, and because of his beauty, he was lifted up. Pride. And he tried to usurp God's position. As the anointed cherub that covereth, it wasn't enough for him. He wanted more. That pride blinded him to the truth. And he was cast out of heaven with a third of the angels. We're no different. You gotta, you gotta watch out because it's very, very easy to become prideful, and that pride will blind you, just like it did Satan. <laughs> Doug just brought up a good point. He said, "Besides, only the Roman priests can absolve sins." <laughs> of course, we're being tongue in cheek here, but they they believe they can do that. Well, they also believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation, where they can actually turn the Catholic communion host and the wine into the literal body and, and blood of Jesus Christ. Literal. Not figurative. Not symbolic. Literal. But that's a whole other subject we've covered in times past. Uh, so, if we go back to this article, let's just read that last sentence again. Jesus is considered the pattern son. He was the first one to take it to make it as a divine, immortal, sinless, manifest Son of God. And this accomplishment will be duplicated by each individual who will follow Jesus. 
becoming the manifest sons of God. It reminds me of the Mormon doctrine, where you know where they believe that if they do this and they do that and they do this, they're going to have their own little planet and, and have their own little spiritual babies, like they believe, you know, their creator. It, it's just it's just a mess. The whole thing is just an absolute mess. But it's it really is. This is like a cult. What we're talking about here. This isn't just some slightly deceived sect of, of Christianity. This is a cult. I mean, if you believe this stuff, how could you possibly be saved? How can you have it both ways? If you believe you are Christ, what need do you have of a Savior? Think about that. And we're going to talk about that more in, in uh, a little bit later here. So... Christ is supposedly unable to return until the stage is set by the establishment of his rule and reign through the sons of God, subduing the nations, taking dominion, and executing judgment on the ungodly, thus establishing the new age. Um, the Christ company, this, this manifest sons of God, who are now, uh, will, they'll, they will execute judgment at the great and terrible day of the Lord. This Christ company will execute judgment now. I thought it was uh, the great white throne judgment where Jesus Christ. I thought, you know, with, with Christians, it's the judgment seat of Christ. No, no. They're, they're above being judged. They are the judger now. They've, put, they've usurped Christ in every way they can do it. I've never even heard of a cult that goes this far. If you think about it, I've never heard of a, I've never heard of a cult that, that claims this much. I mean, even the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses don't claim this much that I know of. You talk about usurping Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. Well, who, who influenced this? Where, where were the foundations laid for, for this movement? We talked about 1948. The Bible says that the foundations be destroyed. What can the righteous do? Well, let's look at the, the foundation. I mean, I'll, we've already probably read enough to almost be able to close the book on this and say this is an absolute, blatant, ungodly heresy here. But... For many, William Branham is regarded as the greatest prophet for the final age. He taught about God's seventh church age. The final move before the manifestation of his kingdom on earth. Indeed, he felt called specifically. Now, this is, this is from um, a book called Brother Branham, page 71. Now, he was just an apostate, charismatic uh, preacher in times past, this William Branham. And in this book... He says, he quotes, A voice spoke from there and said, As John the Baptist was sent for the forerunner of the first coming of Christ, you've got a message that will bring forth the forerunner of the second coming of Christ. This is what was told to this William Branham devil. Now, this is why I have such a gigantic problem with the charismatic Pentecostal movement, which I came out of, and I was in it for like four years. And I was... Very zealous. And I was one of the most radical ones there. Okay, I was also very radically deceived. Now the Lord delivered me out of that thing. I was sincere, but sincerely wrong. And I admit it. But I cannot tell you how many times I had people coming up to me telling me, Oh, Brother Johnson, I just received the word of God for you. He said to do this, or said to do that. And he said to tell you this and that. And you know what? Every time it was something that I actually had to do, 
and I would do, didn't come to pass. Or I would do in order to get fulfillment of whatever, didn't happen. And I thought to myself, hearkening back to Deuteronomy 18, where it says the test of a prophet is that if what the prophet says, if he's from God, it will come to pass. Or, you know, didn't happen. It never happened. And I thought to myself, this is kind of weird, because, you know, if they're really hearing from God, why isn't this stuff coming to pass? Why isn't it... And it wasn't happening. And so this is a big reason I ended up getting out of it, because I was try- I was comparing the fruit of it to the Bible. Even though at that point I was really only reading an NIV. But that was around the same time I found out about the King James issue, and that was when the light really came on. And I meant it was that big of a deal for me. When I started reading the King James Bible, all of a sudden my eyes got opened. It was as though before I was blind, because I was, a, I was reading a perverted Bible, with 64,098 less words than the King James, which is almost 10% of the total text, ultimately spawning itself from the revised version of 1881 that was written by two occultists named Westcott and Hort, who derived that text from the Sinaiticanus and the Vaticanus manuscripts of the Catholic Church, and that came from Alexandria, Egypt originally, that was the Bible I was reading. Yes, it was affecting me spiritually. Why wouldn't it? I was putting a polluted word in my body. But when I, when I finally, um, somebody gave me a tape, um, Gail Ripplinger doing a talk, on a little talk show, and I'm telling you, it changed my life. Totally changed my life. And I think if you ever, if you ever go up to a website, do a keyword search for Gail Ripplinger, I think it's called Action 60s. Is the name of the tape. But it's it was an interview that this lady did with her. And she just was pointing out, doing it in a very, very, very humble way. There's no way you could get offended watching this tape. There's no way. And um, it changed my life. Opened my eyes. And then all of a sudden I saw all the heresy that I was actually in in the Pentecostal church. So I started going to the pastors. And it was just, this was a big Pentecostal church. I mean, they had several thousand members. And I started saying, you know, Pastor... Uh, first I tried to give them the Gail Ripinger tape, and the first thing they saw her name, they said, oh no, she causes division among the brethren. They knew who she was. Even though she wasn't, you know, it wasn't like she was doing exposés on exposing Pentecostalism. She just was doing it on the Bible. That's all she sticks to. Well, the thing about it is, they totally rejected that, and at that point I knew that to be truth. And then I I started reading my Bible, and I said, you know, even if tongues are biblical, or this, or that, or prophecy, these types of things, we're not doing it biblically in this church. Even if it was, we're not doing it the way the Bible says, you know, to do it. And it was essentially the whole let go, let God attitude that I got. And when I walked out of there for the last time, the head pastor shook my hand and he said, don't let, don't let the devil throw you a curveball. And I looked him right back in the eye and I said, don't worry, I won't. And it wasn't a short period of time after that, he was caught up in a sexual scandal within that church, had to leave the state, had to move to Arizona, and so was the music minister. And they haven't been back since. As far as I know, I haven't went lately. I got the sickest feeling, I remember the last time I tried to go there, I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe, you know, there's that vacillating period. And I literally almost, I really literally got sick to my stomach just sitting in that place. And the place I'd set in, I can't tell you how many times before. It was as though the Holy Spirit was telling me, get out of there. Don't go back. 
Because, see, once you get exposed to truth, now you're responsible for it. You just don't go on in the sin. So, this voice spoke to William Branham and told him that, that he was going to be as John the Baptist, a forerunner. And, uh, but he's going to be the forerunner of the second coming of Christ. You know, this is really, if you think about it, pretty sobering stuff. Because the Christ they're going to embrace is the Antichrist. So what voice is actually speaking to them? Could it be an angel of light spirit masquerading as a, you know, as a true angel of God? Well, if that angel of God is true, whatever they're going to tell you is going to line up with the word of God. They're not going to contradict it. So let's go back to the article. It says, There were many errors in Branham's teachings along with occult influences, including having the voice of an angel talking to him regularly, who would often heal through him. So now that would kind of cause you, okay, what if you went to one of these things and you actually did get healed? What, what, what if that happened? Okay, But knowing there's a lot of overt stuff going on with the person doing the healing, let's say he's often all kind of doctrinal heresy, and ultimately he's pointing people Really to hell. But yeah, but he's healing. So that, that's all that matters, right? That, that, that's all I need to know. No. If what they're saying doesn't line up with the word of God or is contradictory, I don't care what they're doing. I don't care if they healed a thousand people in one night. I will choose to serve and obey the word of God before I would obey a lying sign and wonders which is exactly how the Antichrist is going to deceive people. It says it's very clear on that. And that if it were possible, he will deceive the very elect. And he's going to come through all miracles, lying signs and wonders, to deceive people. Saved, and in, 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 if possible, the elect. Unsaved. And this is how he's going to operate. So if you've got this Pentecostal minister... And they're doing all these healings and doing all these supposedly wonderful things and supposedly in direct communication with an angel. And what's coming out of their mouth is contradicting the word of God. Get out of there. Because that's what matters. Don't follow any man. Follow the word of God. I tell people, don't follow me. Follow the word of God. I'm just trying to be a teacher and a watchman. But I'm not trying to build the, build the cult of Scott Johnson so you can follow me. You've got to seek this stuff out for yourself. Be as the Bereans in the Bible and Acts who were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they sought the things out to see if they were so. They sought the things out where? In the scriptures. That's what you've got to constantly go back to. The King James Bible to search things out. And when reading the Bible, you're sanctifying yourself. Okay, it's the washing of the water of the word washes you. It sanctifies you. You can get a clear mind. Okay. So if we go on, many overlooked the erroneous teachings and accepted this man Branham as a prophet. As such, his teachings are still often accepted today. Many of Branham's followers believed that he had come in the spirit of Elijah. Oh yeah, that's that's a big one. Oh, give me a double portion. Like Elijah. Or Elisha. In that particular case. You hear that a lot in the Pentecostal circles. So oh, give me a double portion. Double dose, double dose. You hear that one. Oh, I heard it all, man. I've done all that crazy stuff. Not proud of it, but been there, done it. 
Some even believed him to be believed him to be God, with a capital G. Some believed him to be God, born of a virgin. William Branham, Doug, did you know he was born of a virgin? If this don't get you fired up, your wood's wet. Sorry, lost control there. When he died, many expected him to rise from the dead at the end of three days. Did you know that, Doug? <laughs> oh, man. You talk about pride. They expected him to rise from the dead three days. Said he was God. And he was born of a virgin. Talk about usurping Christ. Why would you need Christ at that point? When Christ is there among... In fact, he's leading the congregation. Well, they expected the same thing from Catherine Kuhlman. That's why they put a telephone in her grave. In her coffin. I don't know if she's made any collect calls lately. And if there was, there's probably a lot of static on the line. Because it's very hot in hell. It's ridiculous. They put a phone in her grave. In her coffin. Benny Hinn went there and tried to talk to her. Said he would go to the grave and vampirize energy off the grave. But that's okay. It's okay to and talk to her. Okay, it's, yeah, necromancy. Yeah, I'm not making this stuff up. This is the fruit of that movement. Just, I'm just touching on little, just, just things that, that I can think of off the top of my head that we've researched. There's so much more to it if you want to really delve into it. I have a whole um, Word document on Pentecostalism that you can email me and I'll email to you. And if you can refute it, which you, you won't be able to do because it's quotes directly from these people. Reference quotes. It's like when I did the C.S. Lewis teaching. Okay, I had a couple people email me and say, oh, you can't be right. I said... What more can I give you? I quoted from his own works. I didn't make it up. I know people that have read his books and said they remember the quotes. But the problem is, is at the time, there was so much other nice fluffy stuff mixed in there that sounded good that you were willing to overlook those quotes. But if you look at them individually, and you think, wow, this is not good. There's something seriously wrong here. But if you come under the spell and you start reading these books, whether it's these Manifest Sons of God or C.S. Lewis, and you get to page 48 and he, he says some doozy of a quote that's totally unbiblical, you're willing to overlook that because you're under the spell and influence of that book. You've, you've put yourself under it. You've put yourself under that the influence of that man. You've been overcome by that person, essentially, as the Bible makes some reference to you. You don't want to do that. That's how it happens. It's not something you want to dabble with. I mean, unless you're a very, very mature Christian and you're trying to expose this stuff. You don't want to go and essentially, as a baby Christian, what a lot of people are done is they're handed books by C.S. Lewis instead of the Bible. So they indoctrinate themselves into the occult and they wonder why, you know, they get involved in all of this stuff. 
I, I, I said this before, but the, but J.K. Rowling, the one that, that has put out all the Harry Potter books, that witch from England, guess who her number one greatest influence was in her writing? C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Wow, look at the fruit there. Great. And again, please reference the C.S. Lewis teachings and all the teachings on Tolkien, if you doubt any of that. Are we not supposed to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints? Isn't that what we're doing today? We're earnestly contending for the faith. We're defending Jesus Christ. We're defending the Word of God. We're contending for the faith. We're reproving the unfruitful works of darkness and having no fellowship with them. We're marking them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which we have learned. And we are avoiding them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Romans 16, verse 17 and 18. That's what we're doing. We're not trying to be smarty and, and prove how wonderful we are and, and, and introduce you to, into some other occult doctrine. We're just trying to stick to the Word of God. So, let's go further. Well, it says, that, so they expected William Bram to rise from the dead in three days. However, after five days he was buried, and to this day his body still in the grave. So, I guess that didn't pan out like, you know, they all thought. George Warnock's book, The Feast of Tabernacles, which was written in 1951, became an important part of the latter rain movement, and it continues to be used today. Today. According to Warnock, the feasts of Israel, described in Leviticus 23, are a pattern for the progress of the church. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've, I, I get into this stuff. Oh, we've got to go back to the feasts. We've got to go back to keeping them laws and, and all the stuff because, because, you know, the Old Testament's there for a reason. Yeah, the New Testament's there for a reason, too. Remember where it said Jesus Christ was a better covenant? He's the end of the law to everyone that believeth. Remember that? Remember it says with Jesus, you know, there, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. So this is where we get in, in touch into the Messianic Christian Zionistic movement, how that kind of ties into this. So they're real big on keeping the feasts, because that's the only way we can assess the pattern of progress for the church, modern day church. Starting at Passover, which is Calvary, which is uh, Calvary, the church has passed through different feasts to Pentecost. It must go through the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, and accumulate in the Feast of Tabernacles, which many believe is fulfilled in the present revival. Revival? That'd be one thing if, if what we were seeing was of God and it lined up with the Word of God, but it's not. Warnock taught that the Great Tribulation would be darkness to some, but not to others. He says, quote, It shall be therefore a Great Tribulation, such as one was never known from the foundation of the world, but it shall also be great glory. One for one class of people it shall be a day of darkness and of gloominess, but to the other, as of the morning spread upon the mountains. To the one of the Great Tribulation, to the one the great tribulation, but to the other the manifestation of the sons of God. Again, this is where the sons of God are really going to become manifest. And they're going to be doing these things that the Bible clearly predicts are going to be 
most likely things like judgments of heaven, you know, the trumpet judgments and these types of things, and what Jesus does when he comes back. Now, they're going to take credit for that. That was from page 83 of his book, The Feast of Tabernacles. Warnock goes on to explain that the overcomers will be perfected and experience no persecution. Sounds like, where do I sign up, you know? No persecution during the tribulation. Those who do not make it will be persecuted, but will obtain mercy from the manifest sons. Not from Jesus Christ. No, no. Now we got to go to the manifest sons to obtain mercy. What does that imply? That we are going to have to go to them to obtain salvation as well, most likely. They'll become our little saviors. Christ, walking upon this earth. I don't, I mean, this is, you talk about heresy. Let's read another quote from this Warnock guy. Should be called Warlock. Would be more, a little more appropriate. Because what he's talking about is witchcraft. It's, it's essentially... Ugh. So, this is from page 79 of his book, Feast of Tabernacles. He says, now we can understand how the overcomer in the day of the Lord, when the great tribulation is upon the earth, will, will be able to administer help and comfort and sustenance to God's people. This is these manifest sons of God. <laughs> Through God's people who are under oppression and persecution, the great tribulation itself is going to be cut short because of the sons of God. So, not only are they Christ walking the earth with the ability, evidently, to do whatever they need to do, but now we're going to have the tribulation cut short, the great tribulation. So it's not going to be a total of seven years. Who knows what it's going to be? Because of them. This is something that Jesus Christ isn't even going to do. But no, they put themselves above Jesus Christ. Have you noticed that? This is, they're acting a greater than Jesus. So the sons of God, through the exercise of their royal priesthood, shall actually shorten the great tribulation. As priests, they will be able to present the needs of the people to God. Oh, what does that imply? Does that kind of like imply like when the Catholics say you got to go through Mary to get to Jesus? You know, we have to have some... But the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Huh. But now we're going to be going through the sons of God to actually get to God. And they will intercede for them. So they're going to be our prayer warriors too. And as kings, they will have the authority of God to dispense life blessing to such that are in the tribulation and in distress. So they're going to be able to, to dispense that. Like a pharmacist dispenses drugs. Well, we're going to be able to get life and blessing through them. So, if you know any one of these sons of God, you better, you know, get, you know, give them some money, kind of start bribing them now, so you, you can get on the gravy train when things get bad. You know, I think that's what we would want to do, because we're just mere mortals, and uh, I guess I was totally confused about the Bible, because if I believe any of this stuff, how can I believe the Bible? How can I believe Jesus Christ came to pay my sin debt, when there's going to be little supposed Jesus Christ walking around, actually with greater power, and with greater authority, you can't have it both ways. Do you see how this is a, quote, damnable heresy? And that they're preaching another Jesus? And the Bible says that when that happens, let that person be accursed? And it says it twice? Accursed. This is not a light matter we're dealing with here. 
Harold Polk, pastor and called Archbishop. Archbishop. Wow. Aren't we getting Catholic-y? Pastor and the called Archbishop of the Cathedral at Chapel Hill Church. Why can't I have a title like that? I've said this before, I know. Monsignor or something like that. or Now Archbishop, I like, you know, that's a nice one. Archbishop of the Cathedral, thank you, of Capitol, Chapel Hill Church, Atlanta, Georgia, is recognized as a modern day prophet. Well, I guarantee you, this guy's got no shortage of ego. He's a prophet, he's an archbishop, he's a pastor, he's got a cathedral. What more could you want? What's not to like, you know? He says in this quote from his book Harvest Time, or his newsletter Harvest Time, December of 1984, page 15, he says, If there is a prophet today who speaks the truth of God, wants his church to hear, it is Earl Polk. He is the leading voice today in preaching the message of the kingdom of God. A man driven compulsively to show this generation that God is waiting for us to do something that will bring Christ back to earth. So God's waiting for us to bring him back. In fact, it's totally dependent on that according to these guys. Christ is in us must take dominion over the earth, and the next move of God cannot occur until Christ in us takes dominion. Christ in us takes dominion. Rick Joyner is another teacher of this movement. He believes the elite overcomers will conquer the world. This will lead to the greatest revival of history, where the majority of the world will be one to Christ, and the kingdom made ready to be received by Christ. Now, before I go forward with these Rick Joyner quotes, I will say that um, when right before I actually... Well, not right before, but probably about a year to a year and a half before I came out of the Charismatic Pentecostal movement, I had somebody give me a book from Rick Joyner, and I read it. And I'm looking at these quotes, and I, I can't remember the actual name of this book. It, it might have been this one, The Harvest... But I don't think it was. It was, but it was this book about some vision that he had, and it was this, you know, it was a book that if you read it, it was like Tolkien, and it was like C.S. Lewis. It was very, very much like that. And it was this big journey, and you took, and and it taught. It was all symbology, and uh, but it was in the spiritual realm, and it was it was like it was like a fantasy novel, okay? But supposedly it was. Divine revelation given to Rick Joyner um, in regard to this whole thing. And I'll tell you what, just reading that thing, what an impact that had on me. I, had, I didn't have a clue about any of this stuff at the time. And um, this was probably back in like 85, no not 85, 95, 95, 96. And um, it had a profound impact on me. And the thing that you would come away from reading his works is, again, the pride. Thinking, wow, I'm going to be one of these uh, people that goes and, and does these great and mighty uh, things, and, and, and I'm going to actually be a living extension of this book, and I'm going to receive all these rewards and all these other things. And what it really did, there was really no... 
it's not like it's hellfire and brimstone preaching. It's it's this tickle your ears type of theology that that essentially um, is is you're indoctrinated into. But I can remember the profound impact it had on me just reading that one book. And then you've got so many others since then and before him. So this is just really dangerous stuff that I can actually personally attest to that I've kind of been there and done it. So quoting from his book um, or his newsletter Restoration from May, June of 1988 it says this harvest will be so great that no one will look back at the early church as a standard anymore. All will be saying that the Lord has certainly saved his best wine for last. That's another thing you always hear about the new wineskins. Very, very common thing. The early church was a first fruits offering. Truly, this will be a harvest. It is said that the Apostle Paul, that he was turning the world upside down. It will be said of the Apostles, soon to be anointed, that they have turned an upside down world right side up. The nations will tremble at the mention of their name. Doug, they said the nations will tremble at the mention of their name. Not Jesus Christ's name. No, no. Uh Uh-uh. Who's getting the glory here, man? Goes back to the same old lie Satan told in the Garden of Eden. You shall be as gods. Unbelievable. But that's what we're dealing with here. They're going to tremble at their name. See, all you got to do is look at the quotes. If you're, if you're a little bit unsure about the whole theology, theological part of what they represent, look at their quotes and see if they line up with the Bible. Here's another quote from The Harvest, page 128-29. Angelic appearances will become common to the saints. And visible glory of the Lord will appear upon some for extended periods of time as power flows through them. There will be no plague, disease, or physical condition including lost limbs, AIDS, poison gas, or radiation, which will resist healing and miracle-working gifts of the saints during this time. So again, they're really emphasizing the whole signs and wonder thing. Whereas the Bible's teaching, if it were possible, even the very elect will be deceived, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. The Bible says evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13 So the Bible's saying the opposite. Okay? The Bible's talking about in the Laodicean church era, which is essentially where we're at right now, Revelation 3, that they're going to be neither hot nor cold. What is, what is the state of their condition? They're blind, and they're wretched, and they're weak, and they're naked, and they don't even know they are. That is exactly what we're talking about today. These people think that they're something, and they're exactly the total polar opposite of it. Why? Because pride has blinded them totally to the truth. Totally. This is why you pray for the fear of God in your life and pray God make you humble and meek before Him and why you should strive to be a servant. Why would you say that thing about the servant? Well, if you want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, then let, let that man be your servant. Remember that's what Jesus Christ said? And if you don't humble yourself as a little child, you will not see the kingdom of God? 
See, that's the way you do it. And then if you put out your... your, your um, there's a lot of different verses in the Bible that talk about fear of God, humility, meekness, um, helping the poor, the widows, the orphans, these types of things. Not seeking the limelight and seeking to be gods and, and all of this other stuff. They that humble themselves shall be exalted. They exalt themselves shall be abased. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. All of this stuff is haughty spirit, pride stuff. I mean, would you agree? Just listen to the quotes. They're unbelievable. These are some of the worst quotes I have ever read in my life as far as just flat out, heresy, unbiblical, unmitigated gall, pride. But they have no problem with them. No problem at all. Okay, let's go further. <sighs> we're going to look at... The, we're we're going to do a study at the end of this where we're going to look at Romans 8 um, where one of the basis for what they say about the sons of God is Romans 8 and we're going to do a detailed study on that to kind of look at that thing and rightly divide the word of truth. Um, but... There's uh, two quotes from the followers of this doctrine who are named Bill Hammond and Bill Britton, who are, who are these manifest sons of God guys. And let's read some of their quotes. This is from Bill Hammond, the Eternal Church, page, page 385. He says, The earth in all of creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, the time when they come into their maturity and immortalization. This isn't just one person saying this stuff about being immortal. Now, what is the common theme you'll see with a lot of these um, kind of like sci-fi shows and these types of things and, and, and even like the shows about vampires and, and, and like the Highlander and stuff like that. Well, you will be immortal. And there can be only one. And you'll be as gods and these types of things. Same thing with this manifestation of the sons of God movement. So it's, it's very much lining up also with occult doctrine as well. When the church realizes its full sonship, its bodily redemption will cause a redemptive chain reaction through all creation. So that's what this guy's saying, this Bohemian. So when the church reaches its full sonship, its bodily redemption will cause a chain re redemptive chain reaction throughout all creation. So because of what's going to happen through the manifestation of the sons of God, it's going to cause this chain reaction that redeems all humanity. Essentially, it's a byproduct. Again, they're going beyond things Jesus Christ ever said. Claiming they could do things Jesus Christ never even claimed would be done. This is from um, Eagles Saints Arise from Bill Britton. And he's quoted saying, I see the year of Jubilee, when we shall pass through the veil into the very presence of the fullness of God, to be fulfilled with this fullness and go forth proclaiming liberty to all creation. Romans 8 calls this the manifestation of the sons of God, and says the whole creation is groaning and crying for this day. This is the ultimate anointing. See, this is how they justify this whole thing. And we're going to look at Romans 8 later. Okay, not right yet, but... 
That's how they justify this whole thing. The whole... Okay, so here's another quote from... Uh, I think that man that we just quoted from. The whole teaching is based on a distortion... Oh no, hold on, this is the commentary. This whole teaching is based on a distortion of Romans 8.19. The belief is that some will obtain immortality by incarnating Christ before he returns. What is it that all creation is waiting for? According to Orthodox Christianity, all creation awaits for the removal of the curse of futility. Sin placed upon it by God from the fall of Adam. What they neglect is the context and the other passages that explain this event. The manifest sons need to operate in order for the kingdom to come and the curse to be broken. See, again, it's the pride issue. But surely the scriptures teach that man cannot do this, but it will be Christ himself when he returns who will bring the work to completion. It will not happen before he arrives, but when he arrives. Now, if we go to Philippians... Um, 3.20 Philippians 3.20 Okay, so Philippians uh, 3.20 For our conversation is in heaven from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who shall change our vile bodies that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself But this is going to happen you know not before he arrives, you know, but as far as, as, as when we're taken up to meet him, and for those people that are on the earth at the time when he comes back, these types of things. But they're saying, the manifest sons of God are saying that this is going to take place prior to all of this, and they're actually going to usher in this event, and they're actually going to cause this to happen, and they're going to usurp Christ's role in all of this, whereas Christ is the one that's going to be doing this. Let's go to... First uh, Thessalonians four sixteen. Okay, so First Thessalonians four sixteen. Uh, let's go to verse. Just go to verse fourteen. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that that. We which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. This is asleep, you know, in the Lord, essentially. Um, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, so this is when we're going to be changed. Not, we're not going to be changed for the manifest sons of God doing their thing on this earth prior to Christ's coming. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.51 1 Corinthians 15.51 Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put upon incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So, we have, okay, and then if we keep reading, uh, so, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? 
And if we go to Hebrews 9.28, Hebrews 9.28, well, let's just go to 27. And as, as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, and this is the, the proof text for refuting reincarnation. Okay, it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. People who believe in reincarnation don't want to hear that. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Unto them that look for him, he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Okay, so if we go further with this study, belief in this teaching leads to believing that God is fully manifest within us and we are gods in this world. I will let some of the well-known leaders and teachers of the church speak for themselves. Uh, this is Earl Polk from page 125 of his book, Held in the Heavens. He said, we are, we are on earth as extensions of God to finish the work He began. We are the essence of God. His ongoing incarnation in the world. This is from the same book, page 60. The living word of God, Jesus Christ, was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The word became flesh in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Likewise, the word of God must be made flesh in the church. In order for us to bear witness of the kingdom which God has called us to demonstrate. This is Francis Fragpain, Presence of God, 1994. He says, When the Spirit of Christ comes into the physical world, He must enter through a physical body. When Christ first entered our world as a child, it was Mary whom God chose to give Christ's birth. Oh, my word. It was Mary whom God chose to give Christ's birth. Mary's life symbolized the qualities the church must possess in order to walk in the fullness of Christ? Oh my word. So it was Mary's life that symbolized the qualities the church must possess. Not Jesus Christ. Wow. Even now he trembles in the heavens watching in awe. For I say unto you once again, the virgin is with child. Well, Now the virgin is with child again. Before Jesus himself returns, the last virgin church shall become pregnant with the promise of God. Wow, this is some really extra-biblical stuff. we got a last virgin church that's pregnant now? Okay. Out of her travail, the body of Christ shall come forth. Raised to the full stature of its head, the Lord Jesus. Corporately manifested in holiness, power and love, the bride of Christ shall arise. You see how they mingle truth with error? That's you're going to see this commonly threaded through much of what these these people talk about here. Every man who has become born again, this is from Kenneth Hagen, the incarnation, or otherwise known, I think, as Dad Hagen. Every man who has been born again is an incarnation, and Christianity is a miracle. The believer is as much an incarnation as was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Okay. This is another, this is one from Kenneth Copeland. Uh, from his book, Zoe. The God Kind of Life. Man was created in terms of equality with God. He could stand in God's presence without any consciousness of inferiority. Right. God made us as much like Himself as possible. He made us the same class of being that He Himself is. 
Man lived in the realm of God. He lived on terms equal with God. The believer is called Christ with a capital C. Oh, and this is almost over. That's who we are. We are Christ. Yeah, we were just talking. We had to just break to kind of vent here because this is, like I said, if this doesn't get you fired up, your wood's wet. I mean, this is just, this is such rank blasphemy and heresy. It's one thing if you're talking about Mormonism and the Jehovah Witnesses and some of these other cults that we've exposed, but this is supposedly a Christian type of denomination that, that is espousing these these unbelievable things that they're saying. And it's just... This is Kenneth Copeland. That was the last quote I just read. Now that man is just flat out evil. I mean... It, he, just, just look at the guy. I mean... Uh, but we got these people following these men and they're leading them to hell. That's the bottom line with this stuff. So, um, going further, here's one from Morris Cirillo. The Anti-Manifestation of the Sons of God. He had a uh, tape one. This is his World Evangelism series. He goes on to say, Who are you? Come on, who are you? Come on, say it. Sons of God. Come on, say it. And that does work inside us, brother. It is the manifestation of the expression of all that God is and all that God has. And when we stand up here, brother, you're not looking at more Cirillo. You're looking at God. With a capital G. Not a God, but God. Even, even Satan said to Eve, in the Garden of Eden, he said, you, you shall be as, as, as gods, as a God. But it was a small g. Okay? More Cirillo so bold as to say he is God, with a capital G. Then he goes on to say, you are looking at Jesus, after he said you're looking at God. End of quote. Okay, so if we go further, then we have Benny Hinn in his praise-a-thon on TBN on November 6th. He says, quote, When I say I am a Christian, when you say I am a Christian, you are saying I am Masakia whatever that is, in Hebrew, which means, I am a little Messiah walking on earth. In other words, that is a shocking revelation. Maybe I say it like this, you are a little God on earth running around. Wow, that was actually a little more humble than some of the other things. Well, little God. The other one's just saying, I am God, with a capital G. Well, we always know Benny's been known for his humility. You know, so, that shouldn't surprise us. So anyway, just kidding. Um, but nowhere are we taught in Scripture that we are messiahs or anything like that. The fact is, we can never be God because he is, he is uncreated and we are created. He is distinct from His creation. Another biblical argument sometimes used is that because we have been adopted as the sons of God, and because like begets like, we must also be gods. We are only adopted. We were not begotten from the Father. There is only one unique begotten Son, who indeed was the exact representation of the Father. Our adoption does not mean that a change has taken place in our character and in our moral likeness of God, but not that, uh, 
our adoption does not mean that a change has taken place in our character. Yeah, well, yeah, it does. Actually, it does. Because the Bible says, Behold, all things are uh, become new. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are come new. And that's what happens with the transformation when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you, and you become, and you have a reborn spirit. Okay? Um, but I think you could probably see the point he's trying to make here. Um, the, the, the point is, is, we're not walking around as little messiahs. You know, I mean, if that were the case, then we would have the ability to pay the sin debt of other people, which we don't have. We have to point people to Jesus Christ, who is the only one that can pay the sin debt, who is the only one that can grant true redemption and salvation to a person. Okay, so if we go further here, um, I'm going to probably go ahead and, and end this part one, because we're already at, at uh, 65 minutes here. Um, and we'll go ahead and pick up part two uh, very shortly.